The following program is a paid presentation. The views and or opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect those of Starnes Media Group or KWAM. Helping you make the most of your money. It's time for Talk Money. Now, here's your host, Jim Shoemaker. Whether you're a baby boomer or a millennial, it doesn't seem to matter. A common concern is always money. I'm Jim Shoemaker. Welcome to Talk Money. Well, today's program is always a program designed around you, our listeners, as we attempt to answer your questions. And, of course, answering questions, all you have to do is sending, send us the question by sending it to Talk money at shoemakerfinancial.com, and we will get your question on the air. And this is the question that we got. And I, I like this individual. It's a male. He's writing. He's thinking. He's, he's going through this process. You can tell he's had a conversation and uh, with some other people. And he says, Jim, my portfolio is a mix of 50% stocks, 50% bonds. Now, okay, that's normal. We see a lot of that. But here's this question. In this volatile world of election and COVID, and think about what he's saying here, are my bonds safe? Now, you know, I get that question. Well, I have two guests today. They're going to dive into that question and answer from a standpoint of saying to you, you know, you have to just weigh it and see. But we're going to answer this question about are bonds safe? Safe. Let me welcome to the program Drew Johnson. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you, Jim, for having me. And Scott Jordan also. Jim, always a pleasure to be here. You guys do a great job, Scott. You've gotten to the point where we're going to order you a chair, no question <laughs> about it. I mean, it's done. But uh, let me start, Drew, because the question is now, my portfolio is a mix of 50-50, 50% stocks, 50% bonds. In this volatile time, the election and COVID is what he's talking about, are my bonds safe. Now, I get that question. I mean, that is, I guarantee you, everybody listening is thinking the same thing about what they're thinking. When they make an investment, they want something that is that floor. I don't care how much it's moving, but I don't want all of it to go away. So let's ask the question. You know, first of all, let me ask you this. I think it would help if you start when bonds are safe, but what actually is a bond? Right. I mean, we need to be clear what we're talking about when we're talking about bonds. First of all, if, if I'm going to cite FINRA's definition, I would say a bond is a loan that an investor makes to a corporation, uh, also could be a government or a federal agency uh, or another organization, in exchange for two things. One is interest payments over a specified term that comes to an end at some point plus the repayment of the principal or what you originally loaned to that corporation uh, once that loan comes due. Uh, so it, it consists of those two things, the interest payments and the repayment of the loan. Oh, the loan. Okay. Now, let me make sure I did not say this about Drew before he gets in. You can tell just by listening to Drew. Drew is the analyst for our investment committee at the office. So, Drew, I just uh, I honor you, man, because you are such insightful and such an analyst, such a guy that dives in and knows the detail. So when you say the word safe, you're talking about interest rates. You're talking about return of principal, but the word safe, 
that's a loaded word. It is. It is a loaded word. And, it, you know, if we want to go with dictionary definitions, Merriam-Webster, See, there, example, I told you guys, uh, that analyst, yeah. you know, I heard that. Right, shot, uh, right? I got it. <laughs> All right, Drew. Yeah, I mean, uh, Merriam-Webster, for example, defines safe as, quote, free from harm or risk or, quote, secure from threat of danger, harm, or loss. Uh, so now let's take that definition, we can, and let's go back to what we said a bond consists of. And uh, with, like I said, it's a loan. So like if you buy a house, you're getting a loan from the bank. Well, in the case of a bond, you're acting as the bank more or less, and it's the corporation that's the borrower. Now, what happens, how, how does a corporation make those interest payments and make those principal payments? Well, they're out in the world doing business like everybody else is, trying to sell products and services. And so they're dependent on their cash flows in order to be able to make those payments. All right. Now, making payments, I'm assuming the amount of, I mean, if I'm thinking if I go and borrow to buy a house today, I might, I hope I'm a good credit risk. So can I negotiate a lower rate because I'm a good credit risk? You can. All right. If I'm not a Good credit risk, I'm going to have to pay higher rate. That's right. And that's the same with a corporation going to the world to sell their bonds. It's it's no different, essentially. The higher, higher, credit rating, higher credit rated corporations are going to have a lower rate that they have to pay. And it's also the, the length of the time that they want to borrow the money. A longer term loan is going to have a higher interest rate than a shorter term loan will. A lower credit rating company is going to have a higher interest rate than a, a, a highly credit rated company. All right. Let me, let me, Scott, I want you to answer this question. Why would someone then, because I know where he's going with this interest rate thing, and I really want to help our listeners understand, why would someone put bonds in their portfolio then? Bonds are there, well, you know, first of all, for the income stream. It, it is an income stream that you're buying, but I think, second of all, it provides that ballast or that floor to offset some of the volatility on maybe the equity side. Because bonds historically, even though they can be volatile, they're less volatile than stocks. Okay, so less volatile than stocks. So now go back, Drew. Interest payments, I'm getting paid the interest that the I've loaned to this corporation. They're paying me for that money that I've loaned them. That's right. And they're and they're paying it out of the cash flows that they're taking in from doing what they do every day, selling their goods and services to people that want to buy them. And so then if you look at different kinds of bonds, like whether they're issued by corporations or by government, well, uh, uh, the government can finance its cash flows by taxing you. You don't have a choice there, but you do have a choice when it comes to corporations. You don't have to go out and buy any particular product or service. You choose what to buy. So corporations are competing with each other for your business. We all know that. Uh, but that means that inevitably some corporations are going to succeed and some are going to fail. And that's right. where the risk comes. I in. know you can't say one's safer than the other, but but let me let me say this. I want to ask you this: corporate bonds versus government bonds. Okay, treasuries. Right. Okay, so you understand where I'm going with this. So right. looking for the floor again. Let's go back to what Scott's saying. Would would I could I look at that and say, well, you should have a mixture of both, or should you lean if you're looking for this? I mean, his question is. Are my bonds safe? And we could say if they're treasuries, they may be safer. I can say that, maybe safer. According to the according to the country. Right. Oh, I mean they, they can they can certainly If they're Argentina, maybe not. Right. They they can certainly uh you know tax you to uh, to make those interest payments, but 
But what they can't do is control the direction of interest rates. And as we in the business know, as interest rates go up, the prices of bonds fall and vice versa. And so if you have an environment where interest rates are going up, for example, you might be getting those steady payments from owning treasury bonds, but you're also having to deal with the fact that if you were to go out and sell those bonds, you would likely get less for them today than what you originally bought them for. All right. That's, that's me, the risk. I want, to, yeah, I want to go back to the interest rates because I, I do want to get into literally looking at interest rates moving up. I, I want to get that in a minute. Let's go back to that interest, okay, that's being paid as income to me, the bond holder. Uh, is it is that secure from loss? I mean, can I say that if I'm getting a thousand dollars a month payment from a bond, then we'll figure out the interest, whatever that is. Can I look at that as being steady income coming to me for a long period of time for the rest of my life, it, as long as I own the bond? Uh, well, ideally you can, but that doesn't always work out that way in practice because corporations can fail uh, and go out of business, and then then you lose uh, you lose that income. So it, it really depends on who issued the bond, whether it's government or corporate. Uh, it's not a sure thing. And so in, in the sense that we're using the term absolutely safe or totally free from risk or harm, it's really not. Um, All right. Let me, let me make sure then we're, we're saying, I, I think I'm hearing you. For his question, are my bonds safe? Scott, you said maybe safer than the stock side of the portfolio. Maybe. In certain environments. <laughs> you know, I don't think I can make that blanket statement. I'll say this. They are historically less volatile. You guys make great politicians, by the way. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm a, this guy's asking a serious question. And, and I know you're doing, I mean, because you really can't. I mean, you really no. can't say one is safer than the other because we know there's volatility in all things. So summarize, I mean, Drew, give me that thought process. Uh, are they free of risk? Well, back to the two components, the, the loss of what you originally loaned the company or the loss of interest payments. Either one of those can stop if a corporation becomes chronically unprofitable and, and goes out of business. The, you, you could lose getting back the loan that you originally made to the company in the first place, which a lot of people buy bonds because they want to get that, that regular income, but, but, and they sometimes forget that you, if you're buying an individual bond, you are supposed to get back that amount that you loaned to begin with. That's the payment of the principal. Uh, the, I mean, the, face it, bottom line is that's what you're supposed to get back. Right, exactly. And there are scenarios where that can not happen. Uh, and then there are also scenarios where the where the income can stop as well for the same reason because the company's no longer profitable. And we've known companies that have gone out of business, and and we've known that 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 one time may have been a very successful company, just just poorly managed. But if a person is buying a company that seems to be um, less credit worthy, we refer to that as junk sometimes or uh, investment grade. Investment grade. High yield. Yep. High, high yield. yield. High yield. And yep. that's taking a greater risk. Yes. And they just need to understand if you go it's like if you're not a steady payment on your house mortgage, the mortgage holder is taking a greater risk for taking, you know, for giving you that. Same thing with a bond and same thing with a corporation. You need to know the credit worthiness of that company that you're buying that particular bond in. So, all right, what about Drew, I really, we don't have a lot of time left, but I want to dive into this interest rates rising. Everybody, it, you cannot get into a conversation about bonds 
We're talking about the rising interest rates. We've been talking about that for five, six, seven years, and it seems like they begin to tick up, and then we get slapped down. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to predict the rising interest rates. That's not a fair question, and I know that's not fair. So, but what do you what do you say to this person who says, "Are my bonds safe?" and rising interest rates. Well, I mean, ultimately, whether they end up going up or not in the near future and whether they do or not is anybody's guess, but whether they do or not, that is certainly going to be one of your bigger potential risks with owning a bond, especially the the higher the credit quality because you're dealing with such a low yield. But but the basic rule is how the bonds work is when you have interest rates go up, the prices fall, and when interest rates go down, the prices of bonds rise. All right, I get that. I understand that. Talk to me briefly about the person who doesn't buy something on the an individual bond, but they're and a lot of our listeners buy mutual funds that are bond funds. How what, tell me about that from a safety standpoint? I mean, that if you're if you're if you want to have exposure to the bond market, that's really a smart way to go about it because you're not dependent on the, the profits and losses of one particular company doing well. You're buying hundreds of different companies that are issuing bonds in a portfolio that's professionally managed by an experienced portfolio expert. Uh, ideally, that's, that's what we look for when we're picking managers to manage our funds. And so you're, you, hopefully what your manager is doing is uh, they're going out and, and they're buying a wide variety of different companies that hopefully are not going to be subject to something like a credit downgrade or where uh, a, a rise in interest rates in one market is offset by a drop in rates in another market and so forth, where you, you get a smoother ride along the way. So they're buying different corporations, but different industries. Different industries, different companies, and, and different mature. They're not, all, they're not going out buying all five-year bonds or all three-year bonds or all 15-year bonds. They're, they're buying a mixture uh, so that you don't have this one-to-one drop I, or rise in, in the prices. I understand that too, Drew. That doesn't guarantee a person that that bond fund can't go down. Oh, no, no. That. But it, it does go spread down. out the, the risk, but it doesn't guarantee against loss. It does not guarantee against loss, but it but doing doing that in the in a proper and thoughtful way can help to mitigate some of the volatility that you're going to have in that kind of a portfolio and make for a bit of a smoother ride. All right. You just nailed it. Let me make sure we kind of get this. This is Drew Johnson. We've been talking with Drew and Scott Jordan here. Drew is our analyst on our investment committee and does a great job. Scott also serves on the investment committee. And the question was, I've got a mixture of 50% stocks, 50% bonds. In this volatile world of the pandemic, COVID-19, and the election year and all the stuff that was going on, or my are my bonds safe? And I think what you're saying, maybe we can say safer than stocks and equities. Safe, you defined it from Merriam-Webster. It is, you know, perfectly against loss. And the answer is, I would say no. They're not right. perfect. They're not going to make sure that we understand. They're not going to guarantee that if you have a bond portfolio, that's not going to lose money. We're not saying that. Right, we're not saying that, but safe is a is a uh, declining scale. It's not a yes or no <laughs> type thing. Some I said politician. Well said. Well, well said. said. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> it depends. But the reality is, I mean, you have to put a portfolio around a person's risk tolerance, understanding, have a plan, and then put it all together and manage it around what that person. So what we really are saying to him is. 
are you are you comfortable with your risk tolerance in a 50-50 portfolio? Exactly. And it, it's it's a lot like going out and, and, and buying a house. You know, you're, not all houses are created equal and not all bonds are created equal. Not all portfolios are created equal. Oh, you that's have to, perfect example. You have to go about it thoughtfully and make sure that what you're buying is what you're intending to buy. Great, great answer, Drew. Well said. Drew Johnson, our analyst on the investment committee. Well said, Drew. Appreciate that. Scott, let me ask you this because the question came in kind of another question, but it did. What about gold? Do you have all the, the different commercials today? I, I mean, haven't seen any recently. Oh, have you? no, no, I haven't <laughs> seen any. I mean, now they'll give you 15000 I don't think it's 15000 $1,500 worth of silver yeah. if you place your order today. Today. You got to do it today. Got to do it today. Now, yeah. I'm concerned about that. And this particular person said, should I have gold in my portfolio? And my answer would be, it doesn't hurt to have a little gold in your portfolio. Right, Just right. be careful. Talk about well, that. Well, there's pros and cons to gold. You know, it does provide a hedge against, you know, volatile markets in a, in a certain sense. And that's why anytime you see heightened volatility in the market, you start seeing more advertisements for gold. A lot of people got buy gold because they fear what's going on in the economy. So it, it can provide that. It can provide somewhat of an inflation hedge, you know, in, in real terms, you know, where you where you have money in paper currency, that can fluctuate a lot against other currencies. So having some gold or a medium exchange that doesn't fluctuate against under other currencies can can protect against that uh, inflation. And, you know, it, it has some potential upside. I mean, gold is up significantly this year. Like I said, anytime there's fear in the market, people flock to it. So Election you've seen, year. You've seen a price, uh, I think it hit a high of a little above 2000 back earlier this year. So significantly gains in that. Uh, but I would say, you know, some of, the, some of the downside is really when you look at it long term, gold has inferior returns when compared to stocks and even bonds. Um, I looked at some numbers the other day and said, you know, if you went back almost 200 years, 196 years, and you put $10,000 in three investments, one in gold, one in bonds, and one in stocks, in real inflation-adjusted terms, your 10000 in gold today would be worth $26,000. Not bad. Your bonds would be worth $8 million, and your stocks would be worth $5.6 billion. So it, when, it, when you look at it from a long-term perspective— <laughs> uh, uh, Wait a second. I, just, I like asking him a question, you know? <laughs> Is that a dunk? If we play in basketball, that's a dunk, isn't it? And he says it so matter-of-factly. <laughs> matter-of-factly. I, I get I mean, you. You know, it's, uh, you know, the thing is, I always tell people it, it doesn't really create value, right? It, it can be a store of value, but it it's not like a company that's making goods and services and creating cash flows. Gold really is just there, and it's worth what other, whatever people are willing to pay for it whenever you want to sell it. So you can't destroy it. You, you can't manufacture it. You can't it. manufacture it. You can't destroy it's, it. It is limited, which, which creates some of its value. But at the end of the day, there's, it doesn't pay dividends. It's not earning anything. It's not creating anything. It's just kind of a fear store. Uh, but I, I, like you said, I think owning a little bit of it in a portfolio can be smart. And, and we even use some managers that will put some money in gold from time to time. But and we they, searched out those managers yes, looking for them yes. that did that. We don't right. want to overdo it. No, but we needed it to fit part yep. of it. I like that thought that you said, owning something. And I think that's true. I just feel that when when there is kind of this nervousness in the market, you can sense it because you just watch the commercials. You, you see the uptick in commercials. I mean, commercials the uptick in the commercials. And, it, you know, and I'm, not, I'm not opposed to that. It's a free enterprise world. Sure, we can absolutely. do that. But the reality is I, I'm going to be careful. Buyer beware yeah. because not only when you buy it, 
it's sometimes difficult to sell it. And it depends on when you buy it, too. If you go back to, I believe it was 2011, gold was trading at $1,800. Now, we've hit we've hit a new high over that now, but it went down significantly during the interim. So the, if when, you'd have bought it at the peak then, you'd have had to wait a long time to make any anything. return at all, and it's still now trading about close to where it was back in 11. But I you think, and I both know there's no chance. If we're doing all the commercials, people are buying it. Well, I, th- I think I think kind of this, the, what, what you're saying is the main reason it can act as a hedge in the short term is because people believe it should act as a hedge in the short <laughs> I term. I believe that's, you're right. Drew. That's, well that, said, that, that's Drew. what it amounts to. Yeah. And that's it's, a and great, when, and great yeah. point. All it takes are people to stop believing it. And, uh, yeah. Well, we've been talking with Drew Johnson and Scott Jordan, and I thank them so much for giving us insight into – this misconception, if you want to call it, bonds are safe. And kind of, I think we went through that process. And then, Scott, you really added to that. Scott, I want to lean in with you a little bit and talk about a question that's come in about, and I, and I think I think this is one of those questions that, you know what, any man, any person, any family, any married, any married person would say this. And, Greg, you could fall right into this one, big guy. And that's the guy that does the production here in the studios for me, and he does a great job. But all of us know that here's this, here's this statement and then his question. I am a risk taker. Got it? My wife is not. Well, I guarantee he could have written another paragraph on <laughs> right, that statement. Right. But he says, what do we do? And what he's saying in, in, in the discussion with him is they're in this – they're in a, an argument phase, right, and right. that's a struggle for that. And, and I think that's an important part of the planning process. You know, when we sit down with a couple and we're trying to figure out, you know, what's important to them, what are their goals and dreams, what are they trying to accomplish, and we start to look at things like risk tolerance, quite often we will see this scenario where you have one person in the couple. It's not always the man. Sometimes it's flip-flop, but one is a little more of a risk taker than the other. Um I was looking recently, there's a psychologist, Kathleen Gurney, and she has kind of developed what she calls these investment personalities. I think it gives a pretty good framework for thinking about this. I saw it in a a Sound Mind Investing book by Austin Pryor, and she kind of broke them down into four categories. You have the daredevils, that's your most aggressive investor. That's That's this guy. They're self-confident. They want to live life in the fast lane. They're they're ready to take the risk and play the markets. Uh, Explorers. Uh, they lack a little bit of confidence. The explorers, they, they like the safety and often end up following the crowd, not too confident in their own abilities. Um, and then you have the researcher, or I call this the analytic or the researcher. They're pretty self-confident, but they have to have all the facts in order before they make any moves. And they, they tend to be a little more cautious. But once they once they get confident, they have all the information, they can, they can tend to make moves. And then there's the preserver. Now, the preserver is almost scared to take any risk at all and just wants to hang on to what they have. Well, you know, when you describe these, I'm, I'm, as I'm listening to you say that, he's obviously the daredevil. Yep. And when you think about that, he's plenty of self-confidence. I mean, he's sure. just out sure. there. He's, he loves running in the fast lane. You're exactly right. He uh, he never looks at the market on a short-term basis. He's out there long-term. And she sounds like you know, the preserver, right. which is she worries about the investments and I mean, I you know I don't we don't know all there is to know about this couple, but the reality is, I uh, I can understand that. I mean, I really can. Yeah, and I think the the key to that is is talking that through. Oftentimes, we have to come up with a balance with a couple because. 
you know, a, a couple in their finance, that affects both of them. And, you know, we know statistically the, the women are going to outlive the men, so they're going to be the ones that are dealing with the consequences of these choices. So a lot of times it's it's getting a conversation around that and coming up with a nice balance that both couples can get what they need out of the investment plan. And sometimes it's allowing that daredevil to maybe have a little bit of money on the side that they can do some of that daredevil with, but, <laughs> but with, you know, so in that daredevil behavior and take a lot more risk, but keeping the, the, really the bulk of the assets that are there to provide, you know, retirement income and reach those goals, keeping that a little safer so that the, the other spouse is comfortable with that. All right. I, I want to talk about if you, if you're going to, let me go over these personalities again, but I know helping a, all four personalities understand their priorities is yeah. really kind of our job and right. what I want to talk right. about. But daredevils, explorers, that's fascinated with money making. Yep. They like doing it. They're they're investing, but they lack confidence. That's right. the only problem. Right. The difference between probably the daredevil and the explorer is the confidence level. And I can get that and understand yep. it. Number three, the researcher. Uh, Drew is a great researcher, right. analytical. Right. They like to dive in and look at the numbers. They're they're cautious, and maybe their self-confidence is not quite where they would be from an investor standpoint, but, boy, they're able to do the research to overcome that self-confidence level. And so you got the daredevil, the explorer, researcher, and the preserver who is just scared of the market and the news and the headlines and probably watches one particular media outlet more than the others, <laughs> and, and that can always cause problems. So right. talk to me now. If we, we know that's where we are, Help me understand, how do you help them get their priorities set together? Well, a lot of times that depends on, well, you know, it's always dependent upon what they're trying to accomplish. But, All right, let know. me stop you. Yes. I want to take a break. Okay. I need to take a break. I was on a roll, Jim. I know you were. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can't believe I have to stop you, but I got to stop you. When we come back, I want you to go through some of these priorities and helping a person understand how to do that, Okay. You're listening. This is Scott Jordan with me right now. We're going through some of the things that people do, these personalities. And all of us have personalities when it comes to investing. He's going to help us with knowing what to do from a priority standpoint, how to develop a strategy, a financial priority. There's some phases that you go through. He's going to talk about that when we come back. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. If you have questions you'd like to have answered on the program, email them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. Jim Shoemaker, Scott Jordan, Drew Johnson, and David Rochester are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securian Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member FNIRA SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Uh, welcome back. I'm talking with Scott Jordan, and uh, we're going through this whole basis of people and personalities when the when it comes to investing. The, the individual sent us a comment and said, hey, I'm a risk taker. I, I enjoy the market. I like it. It's, I am all over it and I'm studying and I do it and I don't mind the risk. And his wife, on the other hand, is this complete opposite. And so Scott's given us some def definitions around that. He's talking about four personalities, daredevils, explorers, researchers, and preservers. Now, I appreciate Scott doing that because he puts it together, that most aggressive person, the daredevil, and the least aggressive, the preserver. And in this particular case, that's the couple we're talking about. Now, 
I would suspect most of you listening are going to fall into one of these four categories. And a lot of times, because you're married and you get along, is you are opposites. If you had two daredevils <laughs> who were married, it'd be a mess. I it, mean, could, no, it could be. It, it could be. It would be. Or if you had We complement each other. Yeah, <laughs> we do complement each other. And so we're going to go through, and Scott's got some prepared thoughts here about priorities, how to develop some financial priorities so that you're communicating with each other. And that becomes a win-win for everybody. So, Scott, walk us through those priorities. Well, you know, we, we were talking a little bit about, you know, those investment personalities or what I refer to more as temperament, and that has a lot to do with somebody's risk tolerance. But it also, the next thing we always look at as we lead into trying to develop an investment strategy is, is kind of time horizon or what season of life are you in. And, you know, you can kind of divide that up into four phases. You know, the first phase would be laying that foundation. You know, you've got that job. You've you've maybe purchased a home. You may have some debt we need to pay off. Uh, we're building a, co- a contingency or emergency reserve. And at that phase in life, a lot of people are more comfortable investing a little more aggressively. They have a long time horizon. They're not... They don't have a lot of capital built up yet in most cases, so they're they're putting money. A lot of people are saving through the 401k, so they have money going in there as they're getting paid, and that's building up. And they're less less cognizant of the ups and downs of the market because the, the capital's not that big yet. So a lot of times people can be more aggressive during that phase. And, and that usually goes up through about, you know, somewhere in the 40s where people are kind of in that introductory or laying the foundation phase. And then somewhere around the 50s, you know, uh, retirement's still a ways off, but you, you're starting to see it a little more. And that's a that's a good opportunity for starting to really accumulate some assets and fine-tune that investment strategy. And then phase three that I think people enter into, and this is when, you know, you're more like in your 60s, getting closer to that retirement. You start going into that preservation assets phase. People start, you know, they've, they've built a little bit of a nest egg. Now they're starting to look at that and they realize that someday they have to turn that into an income stream. And they're a little more cognizant of those ups and downs in the market. So a lot of people enter that preservation phase. And that usually calls for, you know, we talked to to Drew earlier about the the fixed incomes or the bonds. That's where you start to add a little more of those into the mix to kind of lessen that up and down a little bit. That's the floor part. That's the floor part, correctly. And then the the last phase is is distributing the assets. You know, you got to live off of them during retirement. And ultimately, there's estate planning around that, how you want to pass those assets on. So those kind of four phases that people are in tend to coincide with with a little bit around that risk tolerance. Now, not everybody's the same in all those phases. You still have those investment personalities. The daredevil can still be a daredevil. They may they may take the foot off the gas a little bit, but they still have that tendency to take more risk. So not everybody falls neatly into those categories, but we do see those phases and kind of— Are we talking how, about personalities? Yes. Or are you talking about temperaments? Temperament. I understand that. Now— when you move into this phase of financial where you're developing some priorities, mm-hmm. you're saying you start out with laying the foundation, and, right. and that's pretty much the younger that's age. The, that's the younger okay, age. Okay, I get that. That's just getting started but being yep. sensitive. And so would you say that that daredevil at that particular age is more can be aggressive and it's not as damaging? I think so. Can yeah. I can I say that? I, I think so. As long as they have the temperament to handle that. You know, the worst thing 
that the worst mistakes that we see people make, and we see this time and time again, is a lot of times they think they're a daredevil until they actually experience a market downturn, and then they make unwise emotional decisions because they didn't really understand what they were getting into. That's a very good point. So know your temperament, know your temperament. and understand your temperament. Yep. And then look at that and then go from this laying the foundation, the accumulation saves where you're trying to get to. That's the second phase, accumulating yep. assets, your, your 40s, your 50s, your, your, your earning years. You're really putting money away. You maybe got the kids out of college by that time. So that's kind of that mindset where, uh, again, as long as you know your risk tolerance and you know your timeline or how much you can – the length of time you've got to invest, this is a real critical phase for people. It is. That's something they've got to be sensitive about. Absolutely. And, and, you know, throughout all these phases, you know, we talked about the different personalities, but there's, there's always a tension between that, that need for capital growth and then that fear of capital loss. So you're always balancing that tension. In, in an inflationary economy, I say this all the time, most people need to participate in the markets and most people need to own some equities unless you have a lot of money saved up. So there's always going to be that, ta- that tension there between I need some growth, but I don't like loss. So whatever phase you're in, whatever whatever stage you're at in your planning, you have to understand really what your goals are and what you're trying to accomplish. And then it's all about designing an investment strategy that gives you a a nice chance or a high probability of hitting those goals. All right. That makes a lot of sense. So I want to make sure we're delaying the foundation phase, accumulating asset phase, preserving assets, and then distributing assets. Now, we've just talked about something that's written by Austin Pryor in a book called Sound Mind Investing Handbook. We use this, and I think, Scott, what you've done is help this person, I hope, understand it's a normal facet of a lot of families to have two different, quote-unquote, temperaments. We see that all the time. And it's not anything, don't go, oh, this is terrible, we can't do this. No, understanding the temperament and then developing some priorities. But when it comes to portfolio construction, as they're doing all of this, what do you see as the Number one thing they need to be critical about. I know we talk a lot about risk tolerance. That's really kind of a mindset. What are your thoughts? Yeah, and that kind of goes back to those personalities. But that's that's really when you're when you're going to design that portfolio. I mean, first of all, it starts with the goals, right? What are you trying to accomplish? But then is is what is your temperament? What is that risk tolerance? You know, what are your liquidity needs? Am I going to need access to this money anytime in the near future? And then you know, again, tax situation and the time horizon, all that factors in to designing a portfolio. And we talk about this a lot on the show. Once you get to that point, you're really looking at an asset allocation strategy, right? How much am I having stocks? How much am I having bonds? How much am I going to have in cash? That goes back to what, you know, Drew was saying earlier in the show. But when we say risk, define risk to help me understand there's, I mean, there's all kinds of risk. And I guess that help our listeners know what that what there, you're talking about. There, there are a lot of different types of risk, and I'll go into some of those. But really, when I think about risk, it's really that the outcome is going to be different than what I expected. And that can come in a lot of different forms. There's you know, market risk, which we've talked about, uh, interest rate risk. Drew was talking about that earlier. Uh, inflation risk, credit risk in the bonds, currency risk, political risk. Seen a lot of that lately. Uh, but and one that a lot of people don't think about is the risk of not achieving your goals. You know, going back to that preserver, they may not be comfortable with taking any risk, but they not they may not be able to attain the goals they want to hit 
without investing that money in some type of risk because it's that that access or that that taking on some of that risk that allows you to get that return that you need to hit your goals. There's always a relationship between risk and reward. Risk-free is great, sounds good, no loss of principle, pays very little. Too much risk can pay a lot, but you know, you have that ups and downs that you have to live through and be able to live through in order to get that. You got risk. to have the stomach to do that. Yeah, you for have a lot to. of people that yeah. stuff. Yeah, I appreciate it. And, and that's that. why that asset allocation strategy is so important. Once you determine that risk tolerance and what is our time horizon, what are we trying to accomplish? It's about getting that mix of stocks, bonds, cash right to match your temperament, match your risk tolerance and time horizon, but also allow you to hit those goals that you're trying to hit. And of course asset allocation. You talk about diversification. Yep. Diversification. A lot. Those yeah. don't guarantee Guarantee somebody that they they're don't. not going to lose money, but they it do does not. help. It does spread the risk out, though, and it's you know it's a biblical principle. It's, Absolutely, it's, uh, you know you're you're not putting all the eggs in one basket, as they say, spreading that out, and that doesn't guarantee the highest rate of return. I always point this out. Uh, you can make a lot more money being concentrated if you pick the right thing. Diversification just spreads that risk out and, and makes the ride a little less bumpy along the way. I like what you say, and a lot of times we talk about it on the program. Stick to your strategy. Yes. Don't go out on a tangent and get sold something. Stay with what you feel is your strategy. And then I think don't try to time the market. I mean, we talked to people before the date of the election in November. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. This was, oh, should I yeah. do it? And we out. said, just hang on. You and, know? and most of them said, I'm going to get back in right after the election. Right after the so election. I'm like, well, if you don't think things are going to be bad right after the election, then why get out why now? Get and, out? and, you know, yeah. and if you look at it, if you would have gotten out back in October, you would have missed a lot of returns that has yeah. happened and over the People have few to weeks. understand that. So yep. know the strategy that you got, stick to that strategy. And then don't time the market. You know, you've been extremely helpful. Temperament and having some priorities in what you're doing makes for a sound portfolio construction. And I think people need to understand portfolio construction is not just something you just throw together. you got to mm-hmm. pick what you're trying to do. I mean, I think Drew lined it for us with bonds, knowing all the different ways of how to look at a bond and understanding that are they safe? Yeah, to some degree, but don't call it safe, period, because you need to know the risk. And then, of course, you're saying allocation and then diversification is critical. And then know your temperament. Yeah, And it's an ongoing target as well because that, that risk tolerance and that temperament is going to change as you go through those phases we talked about. So it's important to revisit that as you're, as you're moving along through life. Well, thank you, Scott. You did a great job, guys. You always do. And I appreciate so much. That, that I think it's helped to answer that question for this individual. Uh, I want to kind of segue into this next guest that we have in the studio here, someone that's with us frequently also. And uh, his name is, um, let's see, what is your name? I'm trying to think of your name. Go ahead. David Rochester. Oh, Thank you, Jim. We've only known each other 26 he knows, years. He knows I did it last time to him. David Rochester. And, David, you are a frequent guest. You do a great job for us. And um, uh, your wife's listening, I hope, and she's going to call me now and say, you've got to get his name. That's right. right. But I'm just kidding you. Uh, it's good to have you in the studio because you're talking about a subject that I know is dear to your heart. It's dear to mine. And we do it because of our desire, because God has blessed us. And we do it because we want to pass on through our hands, be stewards of what God's given us. And that's charitable giving at this time of the year. Uh, and, and so often people say, well, if they take the taxes, you know, where we can't de- deduct it, I don't know if I won't give as much. Well, that's probably a person that's not very uh, stewardship, stewardship friendly. Stewardship friendly. You're exactly right. 
But I want to ask you this. What are ways today to donate? And, and if we want to say cut your tax bill, we'll talk about that. And then some ways, just some strategies to be good with your stewardship. Sure. Great question, Jim. As, as we most people realize, uh, there were some changes in tax laws here a few years ago. And now we have a much higher standard deduction. And more people are taking the more simplified standard deduction on their tax returns. However, that means many times, if not most times, they're going to lose the deduction they would ordinarily get, itemized deduction, from a charitable gift. So there's there's a couple of strategies I'd like to talk about. Uh, one is what we call bunching. And it's, it's kind of an odd term. I don't know who came up with it, but I, I think it's a great idea. So if in a normal year you're giving your tithe, your charitable donations, would not add up to the point to where taking it as a, as a deduction, an itemized deduction, uh, would more benefit you tax-wise than taking the standard deduction, you could consider bunching what you would ordinarily give over several years. So let's take as an example, you might take one, two, three years of what you would ordinarily give to charity and bunch it in one year, and then take the standard deduction in the off years. So really what you're doing is accumulating the amount you would give. Okay. So so just kind of uh, odd, even, odd, even, odd, even. Well, it could thing. be. It, it, it may be two years before you can you know catch yeah. up to where it benefits you more tax-wise than the standard deduction. Now, you know, there's some, obviously there you got to take into consideration, can your charity, if you're giving that much, afford for you to, you know, do that? So you have to consider that not only in your budget, but also in what you're doing for the charity. But that's a great thought, just the fact that you, you go through this process and think differently, because if you are interested in the tax write-off, then bunching allows you to at least get that, and that's right. the way to do that. All right. You talked about strategies. What's yeah, another? so here's another one. You know, generally, most people are going to give either cash or checks. Same things comes out come out of savings or checking. So it's just a cash donation. But something else to consider is what we would call gifting of appreciated stock. So a lot of companies uh, will grant through bonuses during the year, particularly this time of year, gifts of stock. And so over time, over a lengthy period of time, that could be highly appreciated. So an idea there is is to gift that stock directly to a charity that can handle the sale of that stock, obviously, and take the deduction at fair market value at that time. What you've avoided is selling the stock and paying capital gains on it. Uh, and if you were going to gift the amount of the asset anyway, the charities are not-for-profit. If it's a recognized public not-for-profit, they don't pay taxes on that sale of that, of that stock or that uh, highly appreciated entity. All right. Is, can you do that? Can you is, can you do that with mutual funds? I mean, I think Absolutely. people think about that with mutual funds. You can too. do that with mutual funds. You can do it with stocks. You could do it with bonds, though they may not appreciate quite as highly. Um, so, pretty much any publicly traded uh, investment, you can do that with. What about the idea behind real estate? I know we talked about real estate being a complex gift and right. a lot of issues there. And so talk about that. I mean, even Bitcoin, you can even. Yeah, Bitcoin, uh, real estate, maybe even um, uh, restricted stock could be uh, gifted. However, what you've got to understand is, and, and it's a good point, is it's complex. So from the complexity of it, you've got to consider whether or not the charity can handle the sale of that. Um, and that's where you should check with the charity first and say, okay, well, if I were to gift, you know, 10 acres of land that I inherited from my great-great-grandfather, uh, I would, you know, if I sold it, I'd pay a lot of tax. I'd like to just give it. Do they have the ability to sell it? Because at the end of the day, what they need is, is cash in order to run their operations. They don't want the real estate. They want the cash. Exactly. And I know a lot of people gift cars and, you know, gift cars and, 
I know they're, they're you, know, you know, something like that where you just, you know, so know the charity, know what they want right, and, right. and talk to the charity. A lot of people just start making gifts. And, you know, when you're being a steward, as you're talking about, you're really working a stewardship mindset. You're right. saying, this is what God's entrusted me with. It's in my hands. He's, he's allowing me to manage it. I need to be communicating instead of just writing checks. Sure. And, you know, back to the example of if somebody wanted to give stock or mutual fund, then that charity has to have some type of, you know, investment platform or something where they can sell that, right? Because, again, they're just trying to convert it to cash. So that's one thing to consider there is how, not only how you gift it, taking some advanced planning and time to, to look at that, but how can it be sold later? That's a great point. If you just tuned in, I'm talking with David Rochester, and we're just going through some end-of-year gifting, charitable gifting that you can do and things that you should be doing. David, I know there's one particular charitable distribution or gift now that is really kind of a, a new to some people, and I really want you to dive into the next two minutes and really help us understand this is gifting through a qualified charitable I mean, it's a qualified account. It's your IRA. Well, qualified, a lot of people misunderstand what that is. They don't know what that is. It could be an IRA. Traditional IRA is what we'll refer to, but an IRA, a 401K, a 403B for some entities that are already not-for-profits. So there are multiple ways in order to do that. But here's the the story. Basically, once you reach age 70 and a half under prior tax law, you have to start taking distributions from those pre-tax retirement accounts. Now, I will say this, is there has been a law change now that where age 72 is the age at which you are required to take what we call, quali- excuse me, uh, required minimum distributions. Okay, so from that standpoint, we've got to consider if you're 72 or older, you're going to have to take we use the term RMDs, required minimum distributions. So we're going to use some acronyms, RMDs, required minimum distributions, QCDs, qualified charitable distributions. I got it's, it. Okay. ABCs and QCD. MOUSEs. Right. And I got it. This so here's the point. If you plan on donating to charity anyway, you can have your IRA or your IRA company send that check directly to the public charity. First of all, you're not paying income tax on it because you didn't receive it. It went directly to the charity. Number two is the charity, again, a not-for-profit, does not pay income tax on the gift. So you've avoided paying income tax on what would have ordinarily been required for you to take, and the charity does not pay tax either, and and so it's not counted on your tax return. And that's a qualified charitable distribution. Or QCD, correct. QCD. Got it. All right. Now, that's if you're over 70 and a half. Well, 70 and a half is at the point you can start. Okay. Okay. 72, you have to start taking distributions anyway. Anyway, RMDs, so anyway. that's at the point where if you're, if you're thinking about doing this, you should highly consider it once you're 72. Wow, that's, that is great information. Qualified charitable distributions. David, that, that is exactly what people need to understand. There's so many ways to be a good steward of what God's entrusted you with. Don't avoid it. Don't get caught up in the instead. Maybe it's a little bit more difficult today, but there's just ways of doing it. Right. And that's that's appreciate what you shared. And Jim, I want to add one other thing, and, and I need to put this in there, is that it's not an unlimited amount. It is limited to $100,000 per year uh, that you can gift. Okay, that's a great point. Qualified charitable distributions. All right. Let me do this. I want to ask you, Drew, real quick. Tell us just in summary, are bonds safe? Short answer is no, Jim. They're not 
they are not safe in the sense that you cannot lose money from owning them. There are situations where a company that's issued a bond can go out of business and you lose that cash flow or credit rating gets downgraded and, and price drops and so forth. So, no, they're not safe. Not safe. I got it. All right. And then, you know, Scott, you know I'm headed to your way. What do you want us to know? I just want to say, you know, really understand when you're putting together a portfolio, understand your temperament, that personality, that investment personality. What is my risk tolerance? What am I trying to accomplish? Where am I at? What stage am I at? What's my time horizon? And then understand how to do an asset allocation and design that portfolio to give you a high probability of hitting those goals you're trying to accomplish. That's perfect. I like the word you use, temperaments. Knowing the temperaments, personalities. Well, you've been listening to KWAM, the mighty 990, FM 107.9 and AM 990. My guests, Drew Johnson, Scott Jordan, and David Rochester with Shoemaker Financial. If you have questions for either one of these guys, pick up the phone and call them 757-5757. Next week, my guest, Bob Dahl, and you do not want to miss him, post-election and a look at the market. Along with Steve Anderson and Tommy Armstrong, we're going to talk about year-end tax strategies and common investment misconceptions. That's Saturday at 10 a.m. right here on KWAM, the mighty 990, FM 107.9 and AM 990, helping you make the most of your money. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. Talk Money is produced by Greg Ratliff. Guesting content coordination, Francis Fortner. Production assistant, Lauren Forsyth. Compliance officer, Tommy Armstrong. Mid-South History Moment, Rebecca Brazier and Drew Johnson. We'll see you next week on Talk Money. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific point in time and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information is not investment advice or a recommendation. Investments will fluctuate and when redeemed may be worth more or less than when originally invested. Investments in fixed income securities are subject to the creditworthiness of their issuers and interest rate risk. As such, the net asset value of bond and real estate funds will fall as interest rates rise. The S&P is an unmanaged index of 500 large cap stocks. Investors cannot invest in an index. Financial advisors do not provide specific tax or legal advice, and this information should not be considered as such. You should always consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your own specific tax or legal situation. Jim Shoemaker, Scott Jordan, Drew Johnson, and David Rochester are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securian Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member FNIRA SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated.